Hey folks, welcome to part two of my interview with retired FBI Special Agent Stuart Fillmore. Now, where we last left off, we kind of gave you the background on how Stuart became an FBI agent, starting with his grandfather before him. And we left off with his arrest of Bobby Frank Cherry. Now, if you don't know who Bobby Frank Cherry is, Bobby Frank Cherry was a white supremacist who was one of the bombers of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Alabama that took the lives of four young black girls. 27 years after the fact, Stuart Fillmore actually handcuffed Bobby Frank Cherry, where he would then spend the rest of his life in jail due to that arrest. Now, here's the cool thing, too, and you'll hear that there's a lot of emotion in Stuart's voice. That actually happened to the day, the bombing to the day of Stuart's birth. So the day Stuart Fillmore is born, some 30 plus years later, he actually puts the handcuffs on the man who helped blow up that church on Easter, the day he was born, and took the lives of those young girls. It was a very emotional story. And so I went ahead, and I'm including that. So if you haven't listened to episode one of this two-part series, check that out. But now we're going to go. We're going to start with the, the the tale of him arresting Bobby Frank Cherry. But then we go into Alcatraz. Did the Anglin brothers actually escape Alcatraz? And then we're going to talk about one of the most notorious outlaws to ever come down the pike that was john dellinger uh expedition unknown has used stewart's expertise multiple times and he's actually done two episodes one on alcatraz one on john dellinger and then he's got another one coming up that i can't wait to be able to talk about but it hasn't been released yet on uh just two of the most notorious criminals in american history so this is this is a great episode. So I know the, the last one was more of a lead up, but this is so great listening to the insights. Stuart actually went into the exact same tunnels and got into a raft and, and basically mimicked the, the exact escape from those three that tried to escape from Alcatraz. So with that, here is part two of my two-part interview with Stuart Fillmore, 29-year veteran of the FBI. I hope you enjoy it. the grand jury did whatever the grand jury did but they then they issued a a, 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 a an arrest warrant for cherry he was indicted and uh so i went back and it wasn't just me but went back with it with a team and we arrested bobby frank cherry um and I, in fact uh, uh, i'm the one that put the cuffs on him that day and wow. and again it wasn't um you know it wasn't anything uh, you know it was just a routine deal there was nothing dramatic about it in any way there was no resistance nothing like i say he was an older guy at this point um uh, so we arrested him without incident but the thing of it was that for me and and i, I can't help but get emotional about Take it but uh, yeah. so the um that that church uh that was bombed and and four little girls uh you know, were killed. Uh, that happened the day I was born. Really? It was a Sunday. And uh, it just struck me that, you know, 30-odd years later, wow. um, you know, 
the the lead to arrest that guy, you know, landed on my desk. And, um, you know, that, that like I said, it wasn't just me. I, there were probably five or six of us out there. But, you know, I'm the guy that actually put the cuffs on him. Stewart. And, wow. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So um, it, it gets me every time uh, bringing it up. But um, so to me, it was uh, it was an epiphany. It was a, it was a you know I think uh, I, I call it a God wink. You know that yeah. the, the, you know <laughs> I've got you right where I want you exactly. Wow. So kind of like like I said when I I kind of had that peak at, at pro golf and I you know I yeah. said you know I actually you know I could do this but I just can't afford it and just you know but I I, I proved to myself maybe that I you know I could be out there. Kind of the same thing. I that all the thoughts of you know what am I going to do when I grow up, you know, kind of kind of left at that point, and yeah. and uh, I made a peace, or I just came to peace with that. You know, hey, I'm I'm right where I need to be. Wow. You know, because because you think of all the all the things that would have had to have happened to that, that brought you know me in this situation to ultimately bring justice to this guy, and he was he was later convicted, and you know he died in prison. Um, uh, you know, for that horrific crime. And so, um, that's crazy. So 27 years later or 33 years later, I yes. guess, 33 years later, yep. this guy is out in Cedar Creek Lake yep. and gets a knock on the door. That one that we were talking about earlier, this is always no good. You yep. know, I'm, I'm Stuart Fillmore, especially yeah, exactly. Fillmore yeah. from the FBI. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yep. Man, there's so many metaphors we could make out of that, Stuart, of just how things don't always happen as fast as they should but as long but it i know i know at least it happened i mean that's just i don't know exactly so you know it 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 kind of you know that there's you know the bureau um and we'll get into this if when we talk about dillinger but you know a, a, a lot of the um the mystique and the the legend of the FBI is, you know, some of it was was just public relations. Let's let's just face yeah. it at that. That was another thing that Hoover was was pretty good at and, yeah. and, and exploited that. Uh, you know, and one of the the myths or the mystiques was that the FBI always gets their man. Yeah. Um, and uh, but in this case, it was actually you know it was true that they the that the you know they had never uh, closed that case and. You know, it, uh, you know, and, and justice was served ultimately. So, you know, that's, that's awesome. I know it, it, it's, it's, it gets me just bringing it up, you know, it, it still does. <laughs> uh, wow. I would imagine. Well, that, I mean, it's almost like, well, how do we, I don't know that Dillinger, uh, you know, and Alcatraz can beat that, you know, <laughs> but okay. So that's what keeps you in the FBI. And then, you know, you've got a, a, a career after that that goes on and you yes, have these yeah. cases. But then at some point you decide to hang up your badge and mm-hmm. you become an author. And so, I'll, and you tell me, I want people to know about, cause I don't know that case that happened in Tennessee yeah. that you wrote about. Okay, sure. So how did that come about? Was that a case that you worked? Mm-hmm. And then, okay. And then, so when you're working the case, I'll just set it up like this. You're working the case and it's here in East Texas. Mm-hmm. And you, is it at that time you realize this is so. There's so much here. There's so much to this puzzle that I'm putting together. I gotta. I gotta tell this story one day. That's or a, does it just? Or is it like later? How does that all come about? So now, because you didn't start. You didn't write the book till. I mean, that was 2017, I believe, correct. right? Yes. So, so you're. So this is like right around the time you retired. Mm-hmm. That you. you I retired at the end of 2016. Okay. Wrote the book that. Um, I think published it pretty much that 
the next uh, fall, maybe in September-ish yeah. of 17. Okay. Yeah. All right. And I'll be sure and include uh, in the show notes, link to the book and everything. Folks, you can get it on Amazon. Uh, but tell me how you go from retired special agent to now you're going to go back and revisit this case and yeah. become an author. So, um, again, I said, you know, in in a small office like, like Tyler, you know, we worked whatever came in the door, but we also had certain specialties. And I had um, just kind of become a, a, a public corruption guy. I, that that kind of became my specialty, so I worked public corruption cases, which means, you know, dirty cops, dirty public officials, and, and so forth. Um, and uh, in, in this area, unfortunately, primarily what corruption uh, that we encountered the most was uh, police corruption in the form of protecting uh, drug dealers. Okay. Um, certainly the, the, you know, we got a lot of calls about that, that so-and-so cop or constable or sheriff or deputy, whoever was protecting so-and-so dope dealer. We got hey, which, re- which real quick, a lot of people don't realize this, but, and you correct me if I'm wrong, but East Texas, where we sit, especially mm-hmm. up closer to where I'm from, Sulphur Springs, kind of Winsboro, Quitman, mm-hmm. This is like a really big area for both trafficking as well as like meth labs and stuff, right? I mean, yeah, East Texas is kind of is. a hot spot, right? Unfortunately, okay. yes, it is. So, yeah. you know, and, and and then on the flip side of that is uh, a lot of the the cops that work in these small rural areas, you know, they don't, they don't get paid a whole lot, yeah. unfortunately. And so, you know, that temptation is there. And, and, and that said, uh, like I said, we got calls about it all the time, but... Fortunately, as many calls as we got, most of those things, when you actually looked into it, turned out to not have any merit. Mm-hmm. So although there were a lot of uh, allegations out there about corruption, the, 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 the true cases where, where it was there are relatively small, um, which is, is, is a good thing. Um, but that said, there, there are corrupt cops sure. out there. There's no question about it. Yeah. So anyway, with that background... Uh, what happened in Tenaha was there was a series of car stops that happened in Tenaha. As you're talking about drug trafficking, is on is uh, on Highway 59, which is uh, you know starts down in South Texas somewhere and goes all the way up to Minnesota, I think. Um, and it's long been known as a drug corridor, as a, as a drug route, because it, it, Brad, you can go so many places. You know, from I didn't know from, that. Yeah, from 59, and over the course of um, of the years, there was a, um, uh, a Department of Public Safety DPS trooper named Barry Washington, who actually was from Sulphur Springs, was from Hopkins County. Oh, really? Yeah. Uh, and uh, he became legendary at, at a law enforcement technique called interdiction. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and interdiction is kind of a fancy word for when you do a routine car stop, you just look for other what what are called indications of drug trafficking. Okay, Barry, okay. um, and and those can be anything. Okay, I mean, uh, Barry Washington would notice if the screws in certain places of the car didn't match or didn't fit. Um, I mean, that kind of stuff that didn't fit. But there were, there were some generalities, you know, like out-of-state plates and like no luggage or no, um, you know, no clothes hanging in the back and stuff like that, little things like that. Um, and Barry Washington was hands down, you know, 
the best at it. He, he taught other officers, you know, the techniques of it and, and so forth and was hugely successful in making stops that resulted in large seizures of, of money and or uh, drugs, primarily drugs. Um, and he retired from DPS uh, and I think went into maybe working in a probation office, uh, you know, in a county and got bored with that and went back to work for the city of Tenaha, which is a small little town that happens to be at the intersection of Highway 96 and Highway 59 in Shelby County yep. in, in deep East Texas. Oh, yeah. So so Highway 59 goes right through it. Yep. So Barry started doing interdiction as the assistant or the deputy city marshal in Tenaha and um, very quickly you know, was had had some success at it, and it came to the surface that a, a large, well, I, I want to say maybe a hundred percent of stops involving seizures of of money and drugs were, you know, uh, minorities, racial minorities, mm-hmm. uh, Hispanics and and African Americans. Mm-hmm. Well, Barry Washington himself was African American. I'm pretty but, sure his dad is Aubrey Washington, who was our uh, lived in our neighborhood growing up. Uh, okay, he was a city councilman there in Tyler. When you said Barry Washington, I'm pretty sure his dad is Aubrey Washington. That's crazy. Man, okay. take me back home, man. That's awesome. <laughs> there you go. So, go ahead. So anyway, so. Um, uh, these stops became uh, the the subject of a civil uh, federal civil lawsuit. Um, CNN did a did a uh, an expose on on, on Tenaha, um, and uh, about the car stops, and uh, you know it, it uh, certainly the CNN report or the CNN uh, segment was was incriminating mm-hmm. and and did not look good, um, and so. As a result of that, of the of the the coverage that that about this, uh, the the Department of Justice, the Civil Rights Division, uh, with the FBI, started an investigation of a criminal investigation of possible civil rights violations on these car stops, and so. Um, I was assigned to that, and that was not part of what, you know, we worked in, uh, by counties, we worked territories, and normally that's worked out of the, the Lufkin office, mm-hmm. but uh, the Lufkin agents there were, they worked uh, with the local law enforcement in that area, you know, and they knew them, and so to be a completely objective, I got assigned to work this case because I didn't know those I didn't know any of the law enforcement down there, okay. and I'd heard of Barry Washington, but I didn't know him. Uh, I didn't even know where Tenaha was. I, mm-hmm. I never had really been down there, and so um, you know, I started working it with with a Department of Justice law attorney who came down from D.C. Uh, looked at the all the car stops. There was there was video footage of it, um, and ultimately, uh, that's a whole nother issue. Uh, but the, ultimately, there were no criminal charges brought. It just uh, there was um, uh, the, the the stops themselves, the car stops themselves were 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 legal. Um, and then after that, were, you know, the length of time people were detained, were searches, um, you know, were they were the were the searches legal? All those issues were looked at, but ultimately there was. Um, there was no prosecution brought federally on this thing, okay? okay. Um, and the case was pretty much winding down. 
and I got a letter from uh, the uh, the city marshal. This would be Barry Washington's boss. I got a letter from him. Well, was, let me put it this way: I got an envelope from him, and it was to me from. And his name was Fred Walker. I got a, this envelope from Fred Walker. Open it up and pull out this letter, and I start reading it, and it's an extortion letter. It's it's written uh, to to Barry Washington. I'm sorry to to Fred Walker and to somebody named Rod McClure. I didn't know who Rod McClure was. And it's signed Jack Frost. And there's two letters. It's the same letter. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of them has a has a, a safety deposit box key taped to it. But the substance of the letter is um, uh, Mr. McClure and Mr. Walker, I'm aware of the little scheme that you have going in Tenahaw where you're selling drugs out of the uh, evidence room. And... Um, I'm a DEA agent, and I, uh, I'm i not re- looking to put you guys in jail. I just want a little taste of what you've got. So he wanted, uh, and he signed it, Jack Frost. And he gave a time and a date and a, uh, a, uh, a, a safety deposit box or a mailbox at a mailboxes, et cetera, in Round Rock, uh, and a key for it that he wanted the money in, okay, at a certain time. And so... Uh, by the time I got this letter, these letters, um, the, the date had come and gone, uh, you know, and so I immediately called Fred Walker and said, what, what is this? Do, do you, you know, because I had no warning this was coming. Right, right. What is this? And, you know, he, he just said, I don't know. I don't have any idea what it is. Who's Rod McClure? I don't know. I, I, you know, he, he's just, he's a, he runs a local computer repair shop. So um, one of the things was that, that, and all the stops that Barry Washington had made seized a lot of dope, seized a lot of money too. And, and when, you know, when when people can't explain having a large amount of cash, you yeah. know, generally that's you know that 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 money can be seized, uh, and then there's a process for it. And where this where this initially looked bad, and why the CNN was able to to say, hey, this this looks awful, and it did look awful, is there were no prosecutions of these people. So the the car stops were made. Uh, either drugs or money were seized, but then there were never any follow-up prosecutions. So it just looked like, frankly, that they're just taking the yep. money on the road, yep. and you know, it, it it looked bad because there were no prosecutions. And so that, but in, in the course of all these stops, they had seized a lot of marijuana, a lot of pills, um, and what this letter was alleging was that you know, you guys are selling this and profiting off of it. So, um, you know, and and in in the letter he identifies himself as a DEA agent. So, as it turns out, um, I don't want to give away too much for those that might still want to buy the book. As it turns out, Rod McClure was really, yes, he had a computer repair shop, but he was also a, a drug dealer. Really? Yes. And he and Fred Walker were essentially stealing drugs the drugs that Barry Washington seized they were they were taking that out of the evidence room as fast as Barry Washington could put it in there and selling it and it didn't cost them anything so it was pure profit so uh was able to establish that they were making large bank deposits of cash you know that certainly didn't fit Fred's known salary and you know Rod's were his deposits were off the charts um 
you know, and so ultimately this resulted in in McClure being um, indicted, uh, you know, in drug trafficking. And really what we wanted was his cooperation in, you know, uh, to work against the Fred Walker, who was the city marshal. Um, and in the course of this, we found that they had they had wiretapped Barry Washington's office, um, uh, had um, uh, McClure had a girlfriend that he got to write uh, um, some letters that um, uh, were involved in it. Um, so that there was there was drugs, mistresses, uh, you know, corruption. And I was working this case not only with just just myself, but I, I started working it with a Texas Ranger, Tom Davis, and um, an ATF agent, Blaine Gillis. And there were so many little twists and turns in this thing that some at I don't know who said it. Maybe it was Tom or Blaine. I don't remember which one, or maybe it was me. But somebody said, you know, no one would believe this. This this in this tiny little town, there's all this um, uh, uh, mayhem going on. Um, another thing that, um, so the, I'm sorry, I was kind of forgetting the details of it, but the, the letter that, that McClure's girlfriend wrote actually was, uh, written in Spanish and it was left at the city marshal's office because McClure and Walker staged a burglary of the, of the office to make it look like someone had broken into the evidence room and stolen all the drugs that were there. That's how they were covering that they had been stealing it. And they, they, McClure's girlfriend uh, left this letter there that was written in Spanish, but basically said, uh, we are Los Zetas and we have reclaimed our drugs and we saw all the stuff on CNN about Tinaha and you know uh, it, it was the le- the letter was ludicrous um, but it was staged to look like you know that that, that, that the cartel had done it um, and, and the, the story just really fell apart um, in the in the course of all this stuff happening with break-ins at, at law enforcement offices and all this stuff um, we learn about that there was a lo- another little local drug dealer who was also involved in child pornography that the Secret Service had visited, um, who killed himself a couple days after uh, a search warrant at his place. Well, looking a little deeper into that, into this local drug dealer, his name was David Thompson. Um, Thompson worked with McClure and knew all about McClure's activities, uh, being in, in drugs and so forth. And um, the suicide, it was ruled a suicide, but the only officer that wa- worked it was Fred Walker. And so there's some really mysterious things around this this suicide of David Thompson that that I speculate that it was based on the evidence and, you know, my experience of it. I think it was a murder. And I think it was, I think he was murdered because the Secret Service was, was Thompson was murdered because the Secret Service was, was looking at him. They, they hadn't, he hadn't been arrested yet, but he, they had confiscated, you know, child pornography. And so I think the rationale for me at least was if, if he's in trouble on child pornography, but he can give up. Uh, you know, a law enforcement officer that's selling dope out of an evidence room, uh, he'd likely do it. And I think that was the calculus uh, that for maybe possibly that, that Thompson was murdered. So 
And, and, and again, so in the course of all that, um, you know, we speculated that this, there's just, and I'm just touching on some of the crazy things in this tiny little town that, that you know, someone should write a book about this. Yeah. And by the way, I think Hall is literally, I think it's a one light town. I'm sitting here thinking about that. I've been to downtown Hall, And if there's, if there's, there yeah. can't be many more than one. I think you're right. I think, I think it's so. just, you go, yeah. I mean, it's literally like an old, there's like a feed store. And like I drive through there on 64 going mm-hmm. into, I go to center and Shelby County quite a bit. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm sitting here thinking about this, man. I mean, it's that tight. So you keep saying small town. I mean, folks listening, it is a, I mean, I think it it's is. literally a one light town. It is. It so is. And it was just amazing that all this stuff was happening. Gosh. So, um, Ultimately, the uh, McClure is, um, like I said, McClure was indicted. We had a lot of direct evidence on on McClure that that was pretty obvious that that you know he, he's involved in this. But we didn't have any. We had some circumstan- circumstantial evidence on Fred Walker, the the law enforcement officer, who's really the target of this. That's, sure, this is looking for corruption. This is not looking for a dope dope dealer. Right. Um, but McClure would not cooperate. Even though years earlier he had been a DEA uh, informant, uh, and the DEA told us, said, "Yeah, we remember him as an informant," and he, man, he was, he was quick to tell us anything on anybody to get himself out of a jam. But in this case, man, he held firm to it. It's another one of the things I think that possibly that there was more to this suicide of Thompson because. McClure and Walker, it was in their best interest to protect each other. So McClure was not going to roll on Walker because he knew that Walker could possibly reveal, you know, information about this sure. David Thompson suicide. So, um, you know, there's a lot of just intrigue in this thing. And as it turns out, who the author of this Jack Frost letter that's, that's, turned out yeah. to be yeah, was an old buddy of McClure's, okay, that and they both happened to be DEA informants at the time. And so um, McClure had told his buddy about how much money he's making selling these stolen drugs from the evidence locker. What a dumbass. And and so McClure tried to recruit his buddy who lived in the Dallas area to sell these drugs in Dallas. And the the buddy, turns out, was not much of a dope dealer. He wasn't much better at dope dealing than he was extorting. He gets ripped off trying to sell the drugs. So, um, meanwhile, McClure's bragging to him all the money that he's making. Mm -hmm. And so the buddy decides, hmm, if I can't make this money, you know, selling the drugs, if McClure's making all this money, I can do this this phony extortion. What an innovative young man. (laughs) Exactly. So, so, um, so that's where that's where that you know that's how this all started was this extortion from this buddy, um, and uh, ultimately you know it, it, McClure McClure never rolled on Walker he was never Walker was never charged with anything so you know you kind of left with this just these questions of it, um, and you know you know it just the, it just never really resolved it was is the frustrating part of it and. Um, so when I when you close a case in the FBI, one of the things you do is you, you do a closing memo or a closing EC, electronic communication. And, um, you know, it's just a summary of the case. So that if something else ever happens, like, say, the, the, the Birmingham bombing, you know, mm-hmm. something else comes up later 
and someone decides to reopen this and look at it again, there's a summary of, of what was done and maybe where the status of the case was at sure. the time. So that, that was the purpose of it. And so the, there had been so many things in this, so many twists and turns and rabbit holes in this case that as I started writing up this summary, it struck me that, you know, maybe it's not such a crazy idea to write a book about this thing. And so, um, you know, I shortly after I retired, I just I just started, you know, I just started writing it. And, and it it kind of initially took the form of a report because the, I just told the story. Yeah. I, you know, I didn't. Um, uh, it, and the story told itself. So. So, yes, I'm technically an author, but I don't really I'm, I'm really more of a report writer than an author. But so, you know, because I, I just I just told this this crazy story, you know, and I, I added, you know, some of my story, you know, with it mm-hmm. um, and, and had someone, you know, that, that knows these things better than me take a look at it and edit it for me and, and you know, and make some suggestions. And but but for the most part, it's just the story of what happened. Uh, in so these guys never got they never got McClure did McClure, McClure did. But but Walker. Nope. He's not still in Tenaha, is he? Uh, I don't think he's still in Tenaha, and he's certainly not in law enforcement anymore. But and he uh, didn't get your book and go, "Hey, bud." You know, <laughs> well, and did that know, ever concern the, you? Well, the, the thing is, <laughs> crazy. I, I fully um, uh, McClure ended up being a pretty good jailhouse lawyer. He appealed uh, and fought everything along the way, and, and and he wrote a lot of his own motions and briefs. Honestly, even though he had an attorney, he basically. Wrote stuff and then the attorney just adopted it and and put McClure's work really? to the court. Yeah, and 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 I have to say his stuff was not not bad, not bad. He was a pretty smart guy, and uh, so I I knew that he had this tendency to fight everything, um, and so I wrote the book specifically. Everything I put in there, I, I wanted to be able to document, you know, and yeah. so th- there are a few things I'm not telling you that 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 that. I think are even more incriminating in this case, but it's one of those things where it's more my gut instinct or my just my speculation of things, uh-huh. um, and again, I can't prove it, I can't document it, you know, uh, as well as I can everything that's in that book. So I wrote that book specifically with the thought that that I will be sued for it, but I, you know, I, I I'm telling the truth, and I'm uh, you know I can document what I've got. Everything was documented along the way. And, you know, so I, I was not, I had no fear that I couldn't defend it. Um, I do speculate about, you know, that whether, whether it was a murder or a suicide, but in the book, I, I base it on the evidence that, that was there, and it's just my interpretation of, of you know, of, of the evidence. So, um, uh, so yeah, I, but, but no, I was, uh, you know, I don't know if, if, if because I documented it as well as I did, that, you know, that they just, Thought they're just glad it's over. He's probably just glad he dodged a bullet. I guess. I, I guess. But that's but crazy. No, stuff. I, I never, never heard any objections to it at all. Remind me of the title of the book. I don't. Tenaha, uh, corruption in small town Texas. That's right. I didn't. Corruption mess up. and cover up in small town Texas. Tenaha, corruption and cover up in small town Texas. I will definitely link to it because I think that. I mean, I, I mean, it really is. It's, it's, you know, it's. I mean, it's not a, it's not a very long book. It, it's, uh, you know, I, and I, I think it flows pretty well. Yeah. I, I, I touch on my grandfather's uh, career in the FBI. Uh, that you know, I learned through the the 
his file through Freedom of Information. Right. And uh, w- one of the things that was interesting about his story was, you know, he, he came in 1941 and World War II happened shortly thereafter. And he was involved in a German spy ring case uh, in Detroit uh, that was uh, really fascinating at the time. And and he, he um, after the war, I guess he got an offer to work for a, a toy company in Detroit. Uh, and so he left the FBI uh, shortly after World War II and then within um, maybe within nine months or so he wrote a letter directly to J. Edgar Hoover and said hey um, I'd, I'd like to come back in if you'll have me and and sure enough he they, they brought him back in he was assigned to Houston and they yeah. put him in Galveston in 1947 so he stayed in Galveston from 47 to when he retired in 62 um, and I, ju- I just pointed out that uh, you know that uh, I'm sure it was financial reasons or maybe some of the same reasons Mm -hmm. I'm talking about that maybe even though he was in the FBI, he, you know, just still didn't know what he wanted to do when he grew up. And so he took this job at a toy company. Um, and I just pointed out that, you know, probably once he got there, he realized, you know, that, Hey, selling toys is not, not near as fun as chasing German spies. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So, uh, uh, but, uh, yeah, so I told, I told a couple of stories that I had gleaned from his file, you know, in the book, as well as my story. But, but it's, it's primarily this case. This case kind of just it, – it, it, wrote, it wrote itself. Well, that's ca- – you know, all right, so my buddy uh, Luke Coffey, who's a film producer, we need to make a movie out of this or something, man. We need to do something. <laughs> Actually, I, I have some contacts that are, are maybe have, have, are working on that as we speak. So Well – uh, I've uh, yeah, I've got <laughs> it, it, some. We we need to yeah we need to talk. It about is a fascinating story. It really is. So okay. So from there, um, you know, after after um, I wrote uh, wrote the book and published the book, um, I had I, when I retired, I fully uh, went into retirement with the thought that I would uh, you know do private investigation mm-hmm. and start my own company. I had that. And then shortly after um, I uh, retired, I had an aunt that lived in Dallas, and she had never married and never had any children. And so I was really her only uh, relative. And she had always lived alone. She was very independent. Um, and she got she got sick. She got just it was just from old age. She had a new knee, and then she had complications from the knee replacement, and um, had to be hospitalized. And then ultimately ended up you know in assisted living, and then ultimately a nursing home. Um, and so I, as her you know as her closest relative, um, you know really only relative, I, um, I I became her caretaker. And so it really became a full-time job. Um, I'll take the the hardest, scariest day in the FBI. Luckily, I didn't have too many of those, but I did have a couple. I'll trade those any day, having to deal with elder care issues. Uh, The people that do that are doing God's work, no question about it. Um, it is a uh, uh, dementia is a is a man. It is brutal. It's cruel. And um, you know, so um, that ended up becoming a full time job for me. Um, and in the course of that, um, I uh, had joined the retired FBI Agents Association, the Society of Former Agents of the FBI, and uh, they they did a monthly newsletter, and I very rarely read it. Honestly, very rarely opened it. Mm-hmm. Um, but in April of 2018, I just happened to open the, 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 the newsletter, took a look at it, and there was a Hollywood producer looking for uh, a recently retired agent 
to be on camera for a project being developed for the History Channel. And uh, I thought I fit all of those. I, you know, I would love to do that. Yeah. So anyway, I made contact with the producer, um, and um, turns out he, we, we, you know, we we have the initial discussion on the phone. Mm-hmm. And he starts going into, well, this is a case involving a, a 1930s bank robber named John Dillinger. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of him. <laughs> and I go, I, I have. I have Maybe. Yeah. I have. Go ahead. Rings a bell. So he started, you know, telling me that what the, the, the premise of, of the idea being was that um, there was some um, unaccounted for loot from the gang that had never, never been found. And he was, he, the producer, his name was Paul Lima. And Paul was working with uh, a couple of uh, Dillinger's nephews, um, and one of which was in law enforcement, Travis Thompson. And so, um, and the premise of the show was that we were going to go to the Dillinger hideouts, uh, the known Dillinger hideouts, and maybe some that weren't known, but, but and, and using modern technology, ground penetrating radar and, and those kind of things. Uh, we dig and try to find, uh, you know, this 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 loot, and and that the, the 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 nephews, if we found this loot, they could, you know, symbolically return it, you know, uh, mm-hmm. and maybe try to absolve or atone for, you know, their their ancestors' um, you know crimes. Right. Um, and so I thought that sounds like a blast. I, that you know that was great, and and so I I told him. Yeah, not only do I know who John Dillinger is, but I know I know most of the case right off the top of my head, and and I think that was a long went a long way for me getting the gig. I didn't get it immediately. I think I was they were talking to some other people, but I ended up getting the gig, and so um, they were going to start in Little Bohemia, and Little Bohemia is a is a lodge in northern Wisconsin where the Dillinger gang was cornered by the FBI. It was a, a big shootout. Uh, an agent ends up getting killed. A couple of civilians end up getting killed. It was a, it was a fiasco. It was, it's it's amazing. J. Edgar Hoover kept his job after Little Bohemia, and so that's where we were were where they wanted to start this this uh, this search. And for those that aren't familiar with how how maybe a, a television project works is, uh, you have production companies that develop ideas. You know, like searching mm-hmm. for Dillinger's loot, and they produce what are called sizzle reels. Okay, mm-hmm. a sizzle reel is is kind of a 10, 15 minute uh, trailer to put in front of a network executive to say, "Here's our idea for a show." And yeah, uh, and so what we were we we were going to film a sizzle reel, and so and we were going to do it at Little Bohemia, and um, I, I just told Paul, I said, you know, I think. Um, I think that's great, but you know, um, I, I think a be- we know that Dillinger visited his family farm, and I think I think the family farm in Mooresville, Indiana, would be a better place to start. That's going to be home for him. That's he's going to trust who's there. He doesn't know who. Little Bohemia is a long way up there, and and he may not ever go back there. So why would he bury anything there? You know, it would be at the family farm. Right. I, that's my thought. Yeah. And so. He, they took my advice, and so we start. We filmed the sizzle reel at the Dillinger farm, and it's myself and Mike Thompson is the is the nephew, and Mike's son Travis is the great nephew of Dillinger. And so we were at the the family farm, which hasn't changed a whole lot. It's not a farm anymore, but but it's still somewhat undeveloped in the areas where the farm mm-hmm. was. 
And so sure enough, with ground penetrating radar, we found several hotspots, you know, and so, um, so we, when we started to dig, you know, it's, uh, Mike Thompson, the, you know, the nephew, uh, we let him go first digging. So he starts digging. And when, you know, ultimately, you know, ground penetrating radar just identifies an anomaly in the ground, right? There's okay. something there that's not natural. And it turns out it was a rock and it was just a big rock. Okay. So then we go to the next thing that the, that it's found, the GPR's found. Travis digs that, you know, and it ends up being an old farm implement of some kind. I don't remember what it was. So for the third try, they give the shovel to me. And so, you know, I, 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 and, the, and the GPR says this is about four feet down. Whatever the anomaly is, is about four feet down. So I'm thinking, you know, I got to get to four right. feet, you know. So I hit the first couple pretty aggressively with the shovel. Uh -huh. And I think on the third third hit with the shovel, I heard a crunch. Oh, wow. Like, like glass breaking. Yeah. And I said, oh, I've hit something. And so then we kind of delicately start clearing it away. And sure enough, it's, it's a mason jar. And I did. I obliterated the very end of the mason jar. Um, but you can see that there's something in it, something red in it. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I said, I don't know what this is, but, you know, l let's go ahead and glove up. And, yeah. you know, and, and get gloves on and, and brushes and let's do this with really fine detail. So uncover this mason jar and, and pull out this red paper object uh, that you just based on where it was buried, you couldn't see it initially what it was, but we were able to pull it out. And it's a 1934 shell roadmap of the United States. And it had this strange route drawn on it that was in kind of a zigzag pattern for lack of a better description and then certain cities and, and the zigzag pattern roughly was over the midwest okay um and certain cities had dates beside them and you could tell by the the writing you could tell it was the, the map itself was was pristine it was wasn't faded or anything but you could tell that the the the, the writing on it was done with either like a fountain pen uh -huh. or what i later found out was called a uh, an indelible pencil so if you if you've ever seen like in old movies or something someone's writing yeah. and they'll lick uh -huh. it, okay that's a pencil and when you lick it, it activates the the lead in the pencil okay. uh, and effectively becomes like a pen. This was before ballpoint pens. Got it. So yeah, so this 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 route is drawn on this map, and it's from 1934. And for the folks that don't know, that was a pivotal year in in the the hunt for John Dillinger. Um, and so, uh, you know, wow, we I. I I've seen the footage from this, and, and even the camera guys were, were like, wow, we really found something. Yeah, right. You know, because, um, you know, let's face it, 99% of these shows that go out with, with the pursuit of finding this lost like, like the big Like the big uh, Geraldo. Uh, exactly. Uh, yes, yes, yeah, yes. That, you, was a, you know, that was a good one. You, you end up, Al you know. Say exactly. So you don't, you don't really find anything, <laughs> right? And so the fact that we actually found what – appeared to be a genuine artifact and not you know at a map yeah that's... We're, we're thinking is this a treasure map is this what is this thing um you know we didn't know um and so uh you know treat this thing like for finger you know for fingerprints we bag it up and do everything appropriately there to to treat it you know as a piece of evidence and um 
so from there, uh, they uh, they begin editing and trying to put the sizzle reel together, get that done, and then Paul starts selling this, trying to sell this to the networks. And at the time, it was mainly History Channel was the target network. And they saw the sizzle, and they felt, um, well... That's really compelling, but it's almost too good to be true. Uh, you know, we, potentially we think that might be faked. You know, and I said, uh, I'll do an affidavit. Uh, you know, I'll do a deposition, whatever it takes. I mean, because there, there's actually a little root over the, the, the bottle. You know, uh-huh. that was one of the things that was kind of holding it where it was. I mean, the mason jar. And, uh, you know, it, it clearly, if it was faked, Somebody came out there and buried it long enough for a root to grow over it. Let's right. put it that way. Um, but in the course of that meeting, the History Channel said that they, they there was another legend about Dillinger beyond the, the lost loot theory um, was that that actually that the FBI had killed the wrong guy at the Biograph Theater in Chicago. Uh, you know, and so I'd heard that theory before as well. I didn't give it a lot of credence, mm-hmm. and so. Paul Lima came back to me and said, "This is this is what they're thinking, and um, uh, is there you know how can we how can we you know solve this?" And just thinking purely from as an investigator, you know, trying to solve a case as efficiently as possible, the first thing I said was, "We have family members cooperating. We know where he's buried. Well, let's just do an exhumation, do a DNA test, and and we'll solve that real quick." And my, and my thought was, solve this as quickly as possible so that we can get back on to this map and, and finding out what this map is. Right. Um, well, as simple and logical as what I just told you sounds, that created a firestorm. Uh, <laughs> yes. Um, the, the, uh, there were family members that did not want this to happen. Uh, you know, even the FBI got involved and just said, no, there's without a doubt that was Dillinger that was killed. And as I as I got further into this, you know, there there really are some anomalies uh, mm-hmm. uh, b- between the known characteristics of Dillinger and the body that an autopsy was done on. Um, and there are a few other um, uh, identification anomalies uh, beyond that that uh, uh having to do with the fingerprints. So there's some weird things with the fingerprints. Um, ultimately, I, I, I feel like uh, that, that, you know, that that's him. I don't, yeah. I don't, th- th- there would be, there are a lot of different things that would have to happen for that to be an imposter. Right. Okay. But um, th- th- there, there are some legitimate questions that, that about his identity that, that, that didn't fit the, the body that was, that was killed. Um, and so, had it been my case, if, if the Dillinger case had been my case, mm-hmm. I would not be comfortable with all those questions about his identity. I would want to, to you know, to follow through and solve that. Um, but that said, ultimately, ultimately, we ended up losing. This thing went to court. Uh, the judge ultimately ruled against us. So, uh, you know, to have an exhumation. Uh-huh. And so ultimately the, the history channel scrapped the, the project and it just kind of lingered for a little bit. And, um, a producer for expedition unknown reached out and saw this, you know, mm-hmm. heard about the map and that fits the format of their show perfectly. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, you know, they, they, they don't, you know, they, they, uh, find compelling stories, you know, uh, Ark of the Covenant, and you know, right. that, and the search for that kind of stuff. Um, 
And so, but they don't do in-depth, you know, it's going to be a one-episode thing. They're, you know, they're not going to do a multi-episode look into this the, the map. They're going to say, hey, this is a cool map. You found it. Maybe we can look for something else. And, you know, and that's that's the show. And, and it's fun. It's done in a fun way. And so, you know, um, again, you're, you're going to, you're going to pay me to go out and, and dig up stuff and, you know, look for old gangster stuff. I'm, I'm in, you know, that's not, I don't even have to think about that. So anyway, we ended up shooting an expedition unknown and we, you know, we went back and we kind of, you know, showed, you know, where we found the map and, and, uh, we ended up finding actually a shotgun shell out at the Dillinger farm that we, you know, we, uh, would have been from that era, mm-hmm. you know? And so again, we, th- that, for the purposes of that show, that was a win, uh, to, to, you know, to, to, yeah. <laughs> you know, to, yeah. to find that. And, uh, we did a couple of other, other things in, in that episode. We went up to little Bohemia where the gunfight had been. We didn't really find anything up there. Um, and, uh, uh, we were at the crown point jail in, in crown point, Indiana, where the Dillinger made a famous escape with a wooden gun from there. So, you know, I got to see a lot of these places that I'd only read about, you know, or seen in movies as a kid. And I actually got to be there firsthand. So it was really, really for me, it was unbelievable. And, and the last day of shooting, we were in, we were up in, in little Bohemia and Josh Gates, he's the host of the show. And Josh is a great guy. Really funny, and the guy you see on the on the show mm-hmm. is is that's him. That's yeah. him. He puts a little more energy, you know, into it for the show. But for the most part, that's Josh that yeah. you see. That's the real guy. Um, and I, I, I be honest, I uh, was leaving that night. We had finished shooting and everything, and so I was. I, and I had driven up there, so I was I was driving all the way back to Texas. So I I just I left a little bit early, but. I, I honestly, just like I kind of broke down earlier telling you the story about the, the 16th Street Baptist Church, just kind of the emotions of that, just um, more more really just, I, I was just so grateful to be able to, you know, do something, a project like this that, that I, uh, on a subject I had been passionate about, you know, since I was a kid. And, uh, you know, Josh kind of gave me this big bear hug. He's a big dude. And, uh, you know, had a laugh about it. And I, and I just left there thinking this was great you know, uh, didn't expect anything from it. And then, then a few months later, they called me to do one about the escape from Alcatraz, which I, I, I wasn't as, um, I, I won't say I was, I, was uh, I would consider myself an expert in, in Dillinger and, and gangster related things. Um, Alcatraz has always fascinated me and I know probably way more than the average person, but I don't, I'm not, I don't consider myself an expert, so to speak in that one. So, um, but but anyway, they they had a spot for me in 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 this show they were going to do about the escape from Alcatraz, and they just like with um, the Dillinger case, they had a relative involved, uh, and then a, in the relative's uh, 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 I guess partner co-author, uh, they have a book, and um, uh, so uh, you know I, I'm like hey again I'm in count me in this is fun. So anyway, we went to Alcatraz. We Wait, real quick. What yeah. happened to the map? What happened to that map? That's got to be. That's well, gotta map, be a, yeah. So nothing ever really happened with it. Who has it? Did, so, did Josh so, get to keep it? Or okay. Be, so no, 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 no. So what? Um, the, the owner of the the property. Okay. Okay. Oh, that makes sense. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. He, he actually has it. Okay. And it's actually he. It, it's did, was it verified? Is it? Do we know? Or is it? Just here's like, what we know. Like a really. Here's what we know. Cool we don't have. We don't have Dillin, John Dillinger's known DNA. Okay. okay. We did find DNA on the map. Okay. We do know that the DNA is of a male 
Dillinger okay. person. Okay. But that said, that could be that could be John Dillinger's father. Yeah. And he had a brother, Hubert. Okay. So it, it could be John Senior, John you know the, the the bank robber that we know or it could could have been the brother hubert uh okay. it's one of those three okay, okay? okay. um but we can't say for certain that it was dillinger's map okay the strange route on it is still very much a mystery okay don't okay. know we know that the dillinger gang used codes they they communicated by secret codes um if it's a code uh i haven't found anyone that can make heads or tails of it and real quick before we leave Dillinger, just yeah. okay, where what was the mo back then? Because because I was talking about like the uh, uh, what was the the dapper, yeah, the, the dapper bandit, the dapper yeah. bandit. Okay, that's kind of more modern day. And like I, was, I mentioned, the movie Heat and mm-hmm. kind of like we know. But back then, I mean, I'm like, yeah. I don't know how in that. Like I always drive when I'm going to Austin. I go 79. I go through Jewett, and there's yes. an, one of those old banks. You pass a couple it of says old 1877. Yes, <laughs> yes, and I'm like, yes, I'm like. How did any banks survive back in the day? I know. I mean, it, it seems like it would have been so easy. easy. Right. To to not only just go in there, and, and, and why do I have to say, if I'm Jesse James, yeah. why do I have to tell anybody I'm Jesse James? <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Yeah, right. So, yeah, I, yeah I, I agree. I don't know how a bank wasn't robbed every single day yeah. back then. Um, you know, and, 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 and I'm sure the closest law enforcement was who knows where. It's right? like Andy Griffith and his posse or something. <laughs> I know, yeah, exactly. So as far as the Dillinger gang the, or the Dillinger story, uh, John Dillinger did not come from a, you know, I told you earlier, a lot of criminals, mm-hmm. their backgrounds, just a, a lot of their, you know, it's, it's just the circumstances of their lives. Yeah. Dillinger came from a good family, and he was a good-looking guy, right? He was like, yeah, you know, he was a, yeah, just a and, normal, good-looking, good-looking, um, outgoing guy, yeah, jovial yeah. guy. Um, he, I, I think he was just, you know, he was a rascal, mm. and and he got involved in some petty crime, mm. and ultimately it ended up being an assault uh, that put him in prison, and he was in prison for nine years. Oh gosh, I so didn't it was know that. A, yeah, it was a really harsh sentence, and he was, mm. um, you know, he was just a young man at the time. Uh, and I mean, when I say, let's say it was 1924, so he was 21 years old. He's 20, 21 years old, goes into prison and, uh, you know, he's there for nine years in the Indiana State Penitentiary. And in the course of those nine years, he basically becomes friends with professional bank robbers. Okay. And they're, um, they, uh, basically developed a, a bank robbing system that was almost, uh, uh, you know, almost of, of a military nature. Okay. In other words, they scouted the banks, they planned out their routes of escape. Uh, usually it would involve a stolen car. Um, each person, each guy had a, had a, had a job to do within the bank. Uh, they, they, it was timed, you know, to be in and out at a certain time and get out. And, um, they were very successful, very successful once, once this all started. Um, and so, um, one of the things about Dillinger that, uh, made him kind of jump because there, there were in those days in the depression era, you know, there were a lot of bank robberies. Sure. But one of the things that made him stand out was, is how kind of friendly he would be to whoever you know the, the bank personnel and that he would he would vault over these uh the teller counters or the bank counters right um so that he kind of got the nickname of the jackrabbit uh because uh, you know he he would do that and he, so 
Uh, you know, at the time, the Indiana State Police was a brand new organization. There was a guy that got on uh, there, and his name was Matt Leach. And Matt Leach got to investigating Dillinger, and uh, then the, then the FBI gets involved after the Crown Point uh, jail escape because he Dillinger actually stole the sheriff's car. It was a female sheriff of all things in those days, which was unusual, I think. But um, he stole the sheriff's car and drove it to Chicago and abandoned it in Chicago. And that that was what brought the FBI into the case uh, because he took a stolen car across state lines. And, uh, you know, and I think both both the Indiana State Police and and J. Edgar Hoover saw Dillinger as an opportunity to kind of build their brands, yep. you know, uh, and so that was uh, all. It was all hands on deck in the bureau to to get Dillinger, you know, and then after that fiasco at Little Bohemia, where an agent gets killed, uh, that's what I'm. That's what I was saying earlier. I'm surprised mm-hmm. that Hoover kept his job after that because it was it was bad. It was and. It, if you really look into that raid, um, yes, it did go bad. Two civilians were killed, and an FBI agent was killed. Um, it was, if you really look at it, it it it's it wasn't so much incompetence. There was some incompetence to it. It was really more of a just a everything logistical went against the FBI. Mm-hmm. Uh, just uh, cars broke down. Um, you know, they they didn't have the benefit of seeing the place or any prior planning. Um, and, uh, you were dealing with people that would shoot first, uh, you know, uh, and, and, and they were able the, the Dillinger gang was able to get away, but, um, uh, you know, the, but yes, uh, as far as bank robberies goes, the Dillinger gang carried out bank robberies more in what you would see in, in heat. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, heat is obviously more of a. A Hollywood version sure. of it, you sure. know, uh, but but that's that thought they, out, methodical. Exactly, plan. that's that's how. They, how big was his gang? It, it varied from. Uh, there were two different gangs actually, uh, four or five each time. But one basically, there's there's post and 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 prior and post uh, escape from the Cram Point Jail. Okay. Yeah, there were there were various members before the before Dillinger was. Uh, see, Dillinger had been captured in um, in Arizona. Okay. In Tucson, Arizona, and then brought back to um, Indiana, where um, a, 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 a policeman had been killed in the course of a bank robbery, and so Dillinger was charged with murder in that case. Okay, and that's an interesting thing too. If Dillinger ever ever actually did, did he actually was he the one that actually shot the police officer in this bank robbery? And there's some speculation or some fairly. I, I don't. I'm not sure he would have been convicted at trial, but, but but there never was a trial, so that that case was never resolved. Um, but so, so then after he breaks out of the Crown Point jail, a, a new gang is formed. And in the second gang, uh, uh, there was a, a, a guy named Babyface Nelson. Oh, yeah. Who, who uh, was involved. And, and Nelson. See, when, I forget that Babyface Nelson, George Nelson, you know, he yes. doesn't like being called Babyface. Exactly. At least according to a right. brother where I thought, he does not like being called Babyface. Exactly. <laughs> right. So, and I, that is true, though. But I forgot that he was with. Uh, mm-hmm. And, and he was actually at Little Bohemia. I. Okay. Yeah, and, and in fact, that. it was Nelson that killed the agent at Little Bohemia. Okay. And then later, um, in November of '34, after Dillinger had been killed, uh, Nelson was involved in a shootout with two FBI agents in Barrington, Illinois, and he killed both of them. Ooh. They actually uh, gave him enough 
they hit him as well, and he he died from the wounds that he got from them. So they all killed each other. But Babyface Nelson has the the infamous. Uh, uh, you know, he, he's the only person known for killing three FBI agents. Wow. Yeah. yeah he, and by all accounts, he was just a psychopathic killer. Yeah. I mean, he, he enjoyed it, you know, whereas yeah. Dillinger, I think for Dillinger, I, I, um, I know from accounts that he told to the family that he did not kill officer O'Malley. That was the officer in, in, uh, in, uh, Indiana that was killed in the bank robbery. Uh, Dillinger, denied that, that that he did that and mm-hmm. he told the family that and so um and there is some evidence that that he might not have actually been there so uh, dillinger did not go into this to be you know to kill people right. i think i think maybe it was more or less it was the adventure of it yeah um you know and it turned it, it ultimately turned ugly you know but but i think uh, you know, he went in prison as a young man. He became disillusioned, um, and his friends became these bank robbers. So, um, you know, uh, I'm not justifying anything he did. You know, but um, I, I don't think he was in it just just to go out and shoot guns and kill people. One last question before we go to Alcatraz. So, just out of curiosity, so does a guy like Dillinger just live on the run all the time? Does he ever go back to the farm to kind of settle down and, take, and yeah. how, you know, and 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 how does the operation work? Do they just divvy up the money? So, yeah. and, and, so they divvy it up and yeah. does he get the lion's share since he's kind of the You know, the I think it was pretty much divvied up equally. And then just they all kind of like a, a rock band, they go chill out and then they come back together for the or? most part, yeah. That's wow. pretty much said, but it, yeah, it, it is life on the run, and yeah. and, and, and it's gotta be miserable. you know, I think uh, I, I know I always did. To me, I always thought Dillinger was, uh, you know, his crime spree was many many years. Yeah, he was paroled in May of 1933 and was killed in July of 34. So oh, just wow, a little, that's yeah, short. Just a little over a year uh, was was the time, and so that's what I'm saying. That's where. Um, you know the media and mm-hmm. and I think the bureau kind of built Got up it. Dillinger, yeah, maybe more than he was, yeah, um, and, and you know and then exploited that to essentially build the FBI brand. Wow, you know? uh, is, is, is there anything wrong? I'm not necessarily saying that as a negative. Um, you know, there's um, there's a lot of um, ways that that ultimately that that mystique helped and made things easier from when i was working cases yeah. you know because you know it, it used to be you would go in and you know, talk to somebody and you know uh man just you automatically had credibility uh you know just because you were with the fbi yeah and unfortunately i think that's that's eroded now um you know for a lot of different reasons and we won't go into that but um you know that that mystique that was built, whether right or wrong, uh, ultimately I think kind of, um, and whether it was really true or not, uh, ultimately you know made things easier on certain cases sure. just because some people would help you just because they you're, just you're the FBI. I'm telling you, well, yeah. yeah. I mean, if you show up, you know, you flash your. Did you did you actually have your little deal where you fl- you flip your thing open, your ID, and say, yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, because that's, that's just what, like that's what that is had. like the movies. That's what you had. Yeah, right. You know, one time when I was young and and still new at the whole game, I went to somewhere and it was a like a secretary or a receptionist, and you know, I. Uh, you know, I, I would. It, it's it's situational whether you flash that or not. You yeah. know, but at the time I hadn't quite learned all the situations, <laughs> so you know I just identified myself with the FBI and I showed my my credentials. You know, 
and and it was a, at the time she would be younger than I am now, but it was a lady that was older than me. She kind of looks at me a second. She looks at my credentials, and then she reaches for it. I think she's going to take them from me, and she goes. She just kind of flips it around. <laughs> I'd shown it to her upside down. <laughs> that's awesome. That's, that's something I would do. Well, welcome to the Bureau. But, you know, there are things, too. Again, it's like, you know, you, where, where the mystique will help you somewhat. I had an informant when I was in Chicago uh, that was a guy... Um, you know, I actually he was a very likable guy. I liked the guy, but you know, informants are guys that that you know they're on the on the edge of being criminals themselves, yeah. if the, if not outright criminals. Right. And uh, uh, he was just a guy. You know, I just uh, you know, I, and you don't, you keep him at arm's length. Obviously, he's not you know he's not really a friend, but but I was friendly with him and I enjoyed talking to the guy. Um, and, and one of the things he did was he delivered pizzas just to, to, you know, to make an extra dollar here and there. And he had this big Lincoln car. Okay. And, um, so he lived on the West side of Chicago in the Berwyn Cicero area. And that's pretty much where he'd grown up. It's pretty much just where everything he did was in that one area. So one time I was up on some other deal. I don't remember now what it was in Park Ridge. And if you know the Chicago suburbs, the Northern suburbs, um, are, are where the, the more expensive, mm-hmm. the more high end suburbs are. And we were in Park Ridge and just on some random residential street somewhere. And I'm driving down the street and I see this Lincoln coming the other way. And sure enough, it's my informant. And, um, you know, so before cell phones or whatever, I think we had pagers. And I, um, so, you know, I, maybe that day, later that day or the next day, you know, I called him. And I said, hey, what were you doing up on 4th Street in Park Ridge yesterday about 3 o'clock? And he goes, how did you know I was up there? I had to make a special something. I, you know, I never go up there, but I, I just have to be. How do you know I'm up there? And um, I said, uh, I said, I know where you're at all the time, dude. Don't you forget it. He goes, I knew you guys had satellites on me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I was just pulling his chain. Yeah. And, uh <laughs> So I don't know how. I don't know if, if what the the adult language uh, restriction is on Go the show, it. but I'll tell you what Go I for said. It. Speak freely. So, so he said, "I knew you had satellites on me, and I knew you guys were watching me." And I said, "You're goddamn right, and don't forget it." <laughs> so. I let it go for a couple of days, and I, like I said, I like the guy. I I just couldn't let it go anymore, so I called him and I said, "I was I was just fooling with you. It was a pure coincidence. I mean, what are the odds, you know, in a town right. the size of Chicago that I'd see somebody that I knew just randomly on the street like that, you know?" And uh, and so, you know, he said, "No, no, uh, no. I know you got the satellites on me." So he wouldn't believe it, even yeah. when I'm trying to convince yeah. him that yeah. you know. So, so that's how that mystique can can work for you. Absolutely, a little bit. <laughs> absolutely. Well, um, and then sometime you you talk about informants. I want to have you back on. We need we need to talk about like Whitey Bulger and some of these. I would yeah. love to hear some of those yeah, see, real good. Yeah, informant see, that's where stories. that's where informants you know goes off the rails. Ooh. You know, because uh, essentially, you know, Bulger they were he he was just running his own criminal enterprise Crazy. with the protection of the FBI. Yeah, you know, so yeah, that's that's where it gets off the rails. It's one thing Crazy to have stuff. an insider in Tennehall, but it's another thing whenever you've got yeah 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 the yeah, FBI right. Yeah. You know, and, and it's a weird area because you know that. Uh, 
like I said, they're informants for a reason. And so their motivation is usually to rat out somebody that's a competitor. Of yeah. Theirs, either another drug dealer or just, you know, just somebody they don't like. Uh, you know, the, the, the motivation is not just to do the right thing. Right. So let's, let's yeah, start course. there. Okay. Right. So, right. yeah. Uh, you know, um, so, um, you keep them at arm's length. You realize there's only a matter of time before they get arrested on something else. Yeah. You know, it's just a matter of time. And some of them will try to play that card that they're an informant and, and that kind of stuff. But um, it, it, it's a fascinating world because, honestly, informants make cases. I mean, with, without them, you know, you, you can make some cases without them, you know. But, yeah. but man, they can they make an, a case way more efficient and can guide you as to, you know, where to spend your time and effort. Um, but you have to realize, you know, they're not, you know, and you, and you tell them, you know, hey, I, I cannot condone any illegal activity on your part. Yeah. And, and, you know, if, if there is something like, say, where you're going to be involved in a drug transaction or something, you know, that that requires all kinds of authorization and, and, and those kind of things. But but on your own, you cannot do anything like that. But, you know, you know that they probably are because. Yeah. That's how they. That's how they know this world that they're in. So uh, yeah, it's 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 an interesting and fascinating world. Oh well, the, and the scary <laughs> thing about so going to, to the the deal, the Whitey Bulger deal, at least from the story that they you know dramatized in um, uh, the Departed, is just the ability to make a guy disappear. Which yeah. I get if that like they did with Leonardo DiCaprio's character that at the end he's about to get found yeah. out. You know, it's, like, it's like whoa, yeah. Because you know, I mean, if you if you're the FBI, I'm pretty sure Stuart at one time you could get my social security number and find. <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty sure you could find out all the deets on Jason, right? So yeah. it's like that's kind of scary. And then um, yeah, and then saw, and then I guess uh, Donnie Brasco was he he was mm-hmm. a, a yeah. FBI informant, right? No, no, Donnie Brasco was actually an FBI agent who worked deep undercover that's right he yeah. was he was actually in with them which mm-hmm. i gotta believe those oh man what a i never did that never did any Ooh. undercover work um i'm not um i think one of the one of the requirements of that is is you have to be a really good bser oh. um and you know think just on the spot yeah. I, i'm not that quick-witted as far as being able to just come up with something on the spot that's believable right. um so i wouldn't have been i wouldn't have been good at that but but that yes that is what a, a Fascinating world. Scary life. Yes. All right. So, Babyface Nelson dies of the wounds sustained during the shootout. Eventually, Dillinger, at least purportedly, has been shot. <laughs> we will not get the body exhumed right. at this time. So they escaped by, by I guess, I guess, unnatural and natural means. However you want to say, however it's classified when you get shot. But then we go to Alcatraz. Yeah. And we have, was it three or five? that Three. Uh, okay, we got three guys. Two, two of them were brothers. Okay, that escaped from Alcatraz. And I remember as a kid, that was one of my favorite movies. Me too. I loved Escape from Alcatraz. Yes. And we don't know what happened to these three characters, right? right. Yeah. Never show yeah. up. And uh, so this is your next call yeah. to Expedition right. Unknown. And so, it was, again, it was very similar to the very first time that the, I spoke to the first producer who, you know, said... Um, you know, he's trying to fill me in that thinking that I didn't know who John Dillinger was. Right. And so when they called me about Alcatraz, they kind of the same way, you know, you know, I don't know if you know this, that there was a 1962 escape, from, <laughs> you know, and I said, no, I know the case. <laughs> and I know it really well. 
Um, and, and so, you know, would you be interested to kind of be the FBI expert on this thing? And I'm like, and I, just like I told you, I, I don't, I don't consider myself an expert on it. I know way more now than I did then, but I knew enough. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I, I know the case. I know the case and I can, I can converse about it. So anyway, I got that gig and that involved going to San Francisco. We went out to, uh, you know, to Alcatraz. Mm-hmm. Basically, you know, we were allowed to go in some places where the the public can't go. Um, and if you actually have been there, uh, that was my first time to see it. Actually, see, I have. I've got to go. I mean, I've been to San Francisco a number of times. I've still never gone to Alcatraz. But yeah. my dad, he, the, he and my mom went a long time ago on one of their trips. And he's to this day of all, they've traveled the world. Yeah, but he'll talk about. Alcatraz. It, it really is cool. That's what everybody it, says. It really it's, is cool. Um, but it's impressive to see how difficult this escape was yeah and, and and the way that they carried it out and the way that they um executed it was just it was genius it really was and um uh, the discipline that it took to for the you know because i think it took about six months uh you know for them to to do this you know and they were there were ventilation um mm-hmm. uh ducks in their uh, in, you know in each cell and they basically used that they just dug around those ventilation uh, holes to make them bigger so that they could get out but they constructed these paper mache uh covers to that was the same color as the cell paint you know that, that when they weren't digging or whatever to do it but where the guards were and then the others the other inmates it's all so close together that's what struck me is I, all these other inmates had to know what was something was going on um, but anyway you know they dig out behind the cell there's a utility hall where all the pipes and stuff are and they go up to the you know they're they're, they're able to make their way up to the top of the cell block so the, the um, let me describe how it is so there's a there's a main building in Alcatraz where the inmates are kept right uh, you know with the roof and all that within that building is the cell block so the cell block itself is like a separate little building within okay the overall building okay so they get to the they get to the top of the cell block and that's where they they made a power drills uh, you know homemade power drills they made uh, a life raft and they made life jackets all like with stolen rain, raincoats, all with stuff that they just pilfered along the way that, you know, in, in you know, in the, in Alcatraz. Um, and, and, and they have very strict, uh, you know, protocols and movements in there that the, that the prisoners are allowed to do, right? Um, but, but the, and so then, then when it's time to go, when it's go time, they were able to get out on to the roof of the, of the main building. Okay, they get out and then they scale their way down and then they make it to the water and that's kind of where the story ends, right? Yeah. Um, I mean, I think the official version is is that they're missing but presumed dead, right? Um, so in the not that long ago, I forget exactly the year that it surfaced, but uh, a picture surfaced of two men that looks they're wearing 1970s era clothes and 1970s era haircuts. Um, that generally matched the description of the Anglin brothers. It was John and Clarence Anglin were the two brothers, and the third uh, inmate was Frank Morris, and that's who Clint Eastwood Clint played in the movie. Yep. So, um, so this picture surfaces a few years ago of of these two guys that are supposedly the the Anglin brothers, and this picture was supposedly made by a drug dealer who was friends with them and that knew them in Brazil. 
had encountered them in Brazil, and they had basically established lives uh, down in Brazil. And uh, one of the one of the the guys in the picture, the the blonde one, that would be John mm-hmm. Anglin. Um, the, the way that he's facing the camera and the way the picture was uh, taken, there was enough um, data for facial recognition software to, to analyze it. Um, and it, this unique software that I'm, I'm actually kind of forgetting the name of it now because um, I didn't actually – the show actually found this guy. I just was in on the interview with him. But um, th- this very sophisticated facial recognition software – said 99% that's John Anglin. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and, and they went through several different protocols to, you know, to double check that, which the way I kind of liken it, it was like a, um, an electronic, um, uh, lineup, you know, Mm -hmm. so you bring guys in that all look the same, Mm -hmm. you know, very similar characteristics. And each time the software matched Mm -hmm. that that's John Anglin. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. So, and I mean, with almost like a 99 degree certainty that that's him, you know? So, um, I, I was not part of that. Uh, the, the show actually, Expedition Unknown actually went to Brazil, um, and kind of tracked down and found a few tantalizing things that, uh-huh. that, you know, certainly don't necessarily definitively prove it, but, um, they do, um, uh, you know, don't rule out that they could have made it. In How fact, old would those guys be now? They were all born around 1930. Okay, so, yeah, sure. so they could possibly still be alive. Yeah, um, they'd be old. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's funny. I was uh, I just had a, uh, you know, it was a doctor's appointment um, I had just before I was going to film this Alcatraz episode. And the lady, um, when I checked in at the, you know, at the doctor's office, she said, you look so familiar. Um, how, you know, do, how, do I know you? And I'm, I'm just, I don't think so. And she goes, well, you know, she asked me all these things trying to say, well, is that how I know you? I don't know. And she, she was relentless. She would not let it go about how, you know, that I look familiar to her. And, and she's, and I finally just said, well, I, I was actually on a TV show last year, uh, you know, on discovery channel. And she goes, that's it. Oh my God, that's it. <laughs> and, um, and so I said, you know, and I said, by the way, I'm, I'm actually going to go now. I'm going to do another one about, you know, the escape from Alcatraz. And she she was, uh, you know, she just said, oh, no, that, you know, aren't you scared? Don't you think that they'll come after you? And I said, well, I think each one of those guys is going to be in their 90s now. So, um, yeah, they might come after me, but I, I think I'm going to be OK. I think yeah. I'll make it. Yeah. <laughs> so tell me, who are these guys? What okay, was their, so why were they there, and what was kind of their background? Um, their background was essentially they were bank robbers okay. and petty thieves for the most part. Yeah. Um, they they weren't really great criminals. Frank Morris was a lifelong criminal, um, um, car thief, that kind of thing, burglary. The the Anglin brothers were bank robbers, um, and they all ended up in various uh, federal penitentiaries. I think Atlanta, um, Leavenworth. And where, where they weren't that good at being criminals, they were good at escape. Okay. And so that's how all three of them ended up in Alcatraz, is because they had successfully escaped from uh, other federal pr- prisons. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and I, I, I can say firsthand how impressed that I was by that escape and seeing it firsthand and how they carried it out and how, how difficult it would have been. Um, it really is impressive. 
isn't it funny how Hollywood can like I remember like again I haven't seen it since I was a kid, but the Frank Morris character and then of course the Birdman. You know, you, mm-hmm. you you fall in love with these characters. Like these are criminals, but you yeah. they become the I guess I'm, they're the anti hero. That's what I'm telling you. Is ultimately it, you have to criminals are people yeah and, and and that's what i mean for the most part they're not bad they're not bad people they just, they're just people who have made bad decisions yeah, you know and yeah. and, and I, I think it's the same thing I, I don't know so much about frank morris because he didn't really have any family hmm. but uh the uh, uh ken widener the the relative that was involved in the show that he's a, he's a he's a nephew of the Anglin brothers okay. um you know he he you know, was telling all kinds of, you know, family stories about them, you know, and that, uh, you know, again, they were, they were guys, they were poor. The family were, were, you know, uh, sharecroppers. And, uh, so, you know, they, you know, they didn't have a lot of money at the time and they were desperate times. And that, you know, uh, you know, it's understandable, yeah. you know, how that can happen. Um, you know, and so when you talk to family members, you get, you get, you understand that they're, you know, they're criminals, but they were people, they had people, they, they were people with stories and, you know, and, uh, so and that's another thing about why I would say I would, I would recommend anybody going to see it. It just, it brings it to life. It really yeah. Does. Well, and then you just hear the, my dad said one of the, the things that struck him was going to Al Capone's cell. I mean, it's like, it's freaking where Al Capone was, yeah. you know? It's like, yeah. that's just that's just crazy. And that it's uh, pretty small. It's pretty dingy. I mean, it's, it, it lives up to its reputation. So e- each cell that, that, that's, that's at, at Alcatraz is the size of a pool table. Oh, gosh. That's, <laughs> wow. <is>. Yes. <laughs> that's insane. I yes. didn't know that. That's, that's how big it is. <laughs> wow. Uh, wow. And they are literally... I mean, you know, they're right next to each other, uh, all the way down, and then right across. So the guy right across looks straight into your cell, you know, and and your, the toilet's right there on the back wall. That there was literally no privacy. There was no, you know, Ooh. that's what I mean. So all the, these other inmates, that when you look across from where their cells were. Uh-huh. Um, there's no question that the, the the cell the inmates across from them they had to have known what was something oh, was happening. something was up had to wow that's crazy well all right so when does the next project that you're working on for Expedition Unknown when when will that wrap when will we get to watch okay it? so we're going to be filming that uh, late April early okay. May okay. Um, it's like I said this one to me is going to have more elements in it you know so in the Dillinger episode got mm-hmm. to shoot a Thompson submachine gun. Uh, you know, go to the little Bohemia where the shootout was and look at the, the actual bullet holes still there, go to Alcatraz and, you know, see this cool stuff. And actually, we actually went on the exact path that these inmates used to make it to the roof and everything. So, you know, was I, it I, hard for you to even squeeze through there? I mean, how do, how, Oh, oh I'm, you know, I'm, for, like? I'm forgetting that, uh, no, no, it was, it, I mean, it's narrow, but it's not okay. impassable at all. No. Okay. Um, I forgot the coolest part about the Alcatraz episode. So there were uh, Mike Lynch was and Ken Widener were the two other guys on the the episode with me that were the you know that, that essentially kind of the experts for the show. Okay, um, Mike and Ken were were going to go with Josh, the host. We were going to recreate. Okay, so let me backtrack real quick. So one of the theories is is that you you there's no way you can swim from Alcatraz. There's the tides and 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 the current are too strong. You could end up going out the other side of the of the, the Golden Gate Bridge. Um, the water's really cold. Um, it's almost certain that they didn't swim, and we know that they had made a raft. Um, 
So one of the theories is is that a, a ferry left every night around 11 o'clock and that they had towed behind this ferry. Okay. okay? So we recreated that. Okay, we had a we didn't have a homemade raft, but we had a raft that was about maybe half inflated. Okay. Trying to simulate a homemade raft. And so we we uh, you know, a, a fishing boat uh, is pulling us, you know, and so we cross from Alcatraz all the way to Fisherman's Wharf, which is about a mile. Mm-hmm. And that particular day it was 30 mile an hour winds and about 12 foot waves. And you know I'm wearing a wetsuit. It's me, Josh, and and uh, and the other and the Anglin brothers' relative Ken. And you know we have GoPro cameras on, and so you know you get the effect of what you know. Uh-huh. It was crazy the the the, the waves, but um, I was having a blast, you know. But but you know, and so a couple of times Josh had to tell me to kind of calm down because you know, hey, we're we're recreating a prison escape here. This is not a ride at the water park. Right. <laughs> but uh, so, and I got to do that. Originally, it was planned for for Mike, the other the other expert on it, to do it. But Mike um, apparently gets seasick really easily, and and just yeah, I would have been puking w- everywhere. Yeah, was a little bit I would not uncertain about getting in the water, yeah. and so I, at the last minute, I got to do it, and I, I just oh my goodness, it was a blast. So that yeah, that was so much fun, um, and uh, so I really looked on that great. That said, so the one I'm working on now um, that I'm going to tease with here, but it's, we've got more things lined up that are going to be even more fun than being towed across San Francisco Bay in a raft. I can't wait. Yeah. It's going to be really, we've got some really cool stuff lined up uh, for this one. Well, and like I said, it's a story that I I know from my whole life growing up and, um, been fascinated by it kind of like the Alcatraz story mm-hmm. so I'm excited for that one then we'll get you back on to talk about give the inside scoop yeah, and, yeah this, uh, this could be a whole show yeah <laughs> I, I, that's that's I love it man Stuart dude this is we have been at it for over two hours this was so serious? fun okay this, this is, was I, so I fun man so I appreciate you coming here and so again I'm going to put in the show notes the okay, book great. and anything else that you could share with the audience that you're working on I want them to be able to find you connect with you and watch what you're doing I mean who knows where this is going to end up you might decide to go ahead and be a, a professional golfer again who knows <laughs> so I mean why not at one point I did actually consider pursuing maybe the senior tour you know because you, you know we can retire relatively early you yeah. know in fact we have to hit the door at 57 in okay. the FBI and so I, I, I did flirt with that a little bit at one time but you run into the same thing I, I'm not good enough to attract a sponsor, so I'm going to have to. If I, you know, if I had my own money to support yeah. myself out there, yeah. I probably would have done it, but I just didn't have it. <laughs> All right. Well, man, this was fun, and I can't wait to have you back on. This might have to be a two episode or dude, because it's so good. There's just so many stories in there that uh, this was fantastic. Yes, yes I, I had a blast. I, right. I didn't even. I'm, I'm shocked that it's two. We're two hours in. Absolutely. Well, brother, thanks for being here on the Jason Wright Show, folks. Thanks for listening, to Stuart Fillmore. Go grab his book. It's all a show. It'll be in the show notes. A link to it and. Uh, This is fun, man. Thanks, Jason. Had a blast. All right, brother. Hey, guys, it's Jason. You know I am the improve always and always guy. Have you ever wanted 
to live the improve always and always lifestyle day in and day out? Well, guess what? There's an app for that. It's the Vitruvian Lab. And you can go to the Apple Store right now and download it for free. And I got to tell you about my latest course. It's Massively Transformative Habits, MTH. This is a course where I not only give you the science-backed research of those universal habits that every single one of us need to adopt for better health, better thinking, better relationships, living longer and living healthier, but also I give you the behavioral science that will help you understand how to make these behaviors habits. It's one thing to know what you should be doing. It's another thing to know how to start habits, but combining the two, knowing exactly what you should be doing every single day of your life for a more joyful, fulfilling life, a healthier life, and also how to make those habits stick. It's all in massively transformative habit. Here's where you can learn all about it. JasonRightNow.com forward slash M-T-H. JasonRightNow.com forward slash M-T-H. Go out to the App Store, download the Vitruvian Lab for free. Then go over and check out JasonRightNow.com forward slash M-T-H. There's only going to be 50 slots for this initial cohort. I want you to check it out. If you have any questions, contact me. Find out if this is right for you. I would love to talk to you. That's jasonrightnow.com forward slash MTH. Check out Massively Transformative Habits. Now, enjoy the show. Whoa, whoa, whoa. I almost forgot the best part. Because you are a Jason Wright Show listener, you get $100 off the course should you decide to take it. All you have to do is put in promo code podcast at the checkout and you get the course for $100 off. Check it out. Promo code podcast. Go right now. JasonRightNow.com forward slash MTH. I will see you there. Well, that does it for this episode of The Jason Wright Show. Thank you so much for listening. This has been a Texas Titan Media production. Fourth Wall did the music. And as always, thank you so much for listening. Please consider going out to jasonwrightnow.com and signing up for the Vitruvian Letter. Also, please go out to iTunes. It takes like 30 seconds to just leave us a five-star rating. It does wonders for the podcast. I would be so grateful. And with that, until we meet again, go crush it and endeavor to improve always in all ways. I'm out. Thank you.